The Interim Leader podcast is brought to you by Odgers Interim, the UK's number one interim management provider. Hi, I'm Bambos Heraklis, and welcome to another episode of the Odgers Interim Media and Entertainment Podcast. My guest today is Delphine Levens, a senior box office analyst at Gower Street Analytics, who provide real-time data and analysis for key players across the film industry. We'll be exploring the impact of COVID-19, what it means for the future of film and cinema, and the trends that have developed as a result of the last 12 months. Right, Delphine, hi, thanks for joining us. Hiya, thanks for having me. No problem. So let's start by asking, on a scale of 1 to 10, how excited are you by the prospect of going back into a cinema come May? <laughs> um, 11, <laughs> I would say. Um, I think, yeah, it's been... The cinema is kind of, yeah, uh, my main love and not being able to go for such a long period of time has been very strange for me. I think it's the longest I've ever been without going into a cinema. So... Yeah, I'll be I'll be one of the ones queuing outside the front door on May the So you're one of those very lucky people who, by the sounds of it, has managed to combine their passion and their interests with their with their jobs. So, do you just want to uh, take a few minutes just to give us a background as to what you do and also what Gower Street Analytics do? Yeah, absolutely. So Gower Street Analytics are primarily we provide box office analysis reporting and forecasting for film studios and film distributors. So what that means is basically we look at box office results for films that have already come out and we analyse those to kind of see what they can tell us about trends in cinema going, what audience interests are, um, but we also forecast as well. So the idea behind that being that we try and create a vision of what the marketplace might look like a few months or even years into the future, which is not a precise science by any means, but the aim of doing that is basically to provide optimal uh, conditions to release a film in. Um, so we can assist film studios with determining their release date for a film, working out you know, where would be the best place to position their film release amongst the competition that might be in the market at the time. Um, And it's just generally, obviously, optimising revenue for films by analysing what the marketplace looks like and how best to interact with that. So my role as a box office analyst is kind of doing a lot of the the film-based work behind that. So we have data scientists that work with us behind the operation. Um, And then people like myself, who are more from a film background. So yeah, my day-to-day really is basically just kind of observing the market across different territories, doing analysis to kind of see where we're performing in relation to past years, and then thinking about, you know, future releases, what's coming up, watching a lot of trailers, very pleased to get paid to watch trailers, watching films as well deciding yeah what we think the kind of the future might look like so does the fact that it's been a very up and down year to say the least for for the film industry has that made has it been a quiet year for you or has it been a busy year for you but in a very different way to what it's what it's typically been in the past it's it's really interesting I think I wouldn't say it's been quiet it's 
but it's been different. Um, we operate across a number of territories, so don't just look at the UK. Um, we look at territories in Asia Pacific as well, and the US, um, and territories across Europe, like Germany and Spain. And all of these countries have had their own different recovery, their own different lockdowns, restrictions, and things like that. I mean, Australia is kind of the starkest example. Obviously, they have the opposite seasons to us. So when we went into our winter lockdown, it was their summer. So, you know, cinemas were open and thriving there, but um, didn't necessarily have the content. In that kind of downtime where cinemas are closed, it's anticipating when they might reopen, anticipating what films will be available when they do reopen, anticipating what the audience demand might be. Um, so yeah, because we're quite kind of future focused, it didn't necessarily slow us down. It just meant that we had actually less data to work with and were doing a lot more guessing, which has been, I would say, fun at first and then ultimately quite frustrating. I like to base my work in as much data as possible. Um, and when you don't really have any data to go on, you sort of become a bit of a fortune teller, which is yeah, a different job. But yeah, it's been a really interesting year and I've enjoyed kind of seeing how the cinema landscape has changed in that time. So let's let's pick up on that because what's happened over the last 12 months or so will have a long-lasting impact, I think, for, from an outsider's perspective on not only how we go to the cinema and how we enjoy the cinema experience and what that act, what that will look like, but potentially on, on the film industry as a whole, how films are made, uh, the types of films that are made and the types of films that we want to see over the next next few years. So I want to cover all of that in, in our discussion, but let's let's start firstly with the um, cinema experience. What should we expect come May when we are uh, allowed to go back into, into cinemas? And what, how much of that do you think will continue into the future? So I think something that was already happening before the pandemic but I mean I think like a lot of the sort of themes I'm going to touch on trends I'll touch on today they're things that there was kind of a hint of before the pandemic and the pandemic has just accelerated them and one of those things is what I like to call the boutiqueification of cinemas good word <laughs> and good word. yeah uh, the idea behind that basically is that Cinemas like the Everyman chain, for example, um, a very popular and Curzon as well, and Picture House. Cinemas where they've got uh, more luxury seating, they've got a better food and drink offer. Basically, they're curating an experience. They're making the cinema a night out. They care about the customer. They make you feel valued as an audience member, as opposed to your local multiplex, where it's still very kind of cookie cutter, someone might forget to turn the lights down before the film starts <laughs> there might be popcorn all over the floor from the last viewing you know um and I think basically because well cinema is becoming more expensive coming out of this period of time we're going to be in an economic recession and generally cinema does okay in economic recessions so in the uh, recession in 2007 there wasn't any dip in cinema going following that which is quite promising for what we're going to see hopefully coming out of this kind of period of time that happens because people see cinema as a night out it becomes more of an event you know people might not be able to afford theater obviously the issue at the moment as well as things like theater and concerts they're bigger crowds so there's concerns about social distancing people are kind of quite 
knowledgeable about what the cinema entails it's easier to social distance there it's a smaller group of people so generally I think when people go to the cinema they're making it more of an experience so they're happy to pay a little bit extra for your every man or something like that to have the comfort of the sofas and the food offering etc so I think yeah that's an interestingly when the cinemas did reopen in July in the UK um, for a few months every man and Curzon um, for a couple of reasons were kind of hugely above their normal market share and I think part of it is obviously their kind of boutique offering if you're going back to the cinema for the first time in months you kind of think oh you'll I'll treat myself but also um, interestingly Curzon and every man are a lot more relaxed about the kind of content they show so a lot of the circuit chain cinemas won't show content that is already on video on demand platforms, whereas Curzon and Everyman are more relaxed about that. And interestingly, that seems to attract more customers too. I think we're going to see more cinemas striving to kind of curate that audience experience, care about their audience and make it special. Mm. You touched upon it there, but I guess one, one of the themes that I wanted to pick up on was the blurring between what we can now see at home on our TV screens via streaming um, and, and numerous platforms and what will be on offer um, at, at the cinema. Uh, I think it was, it was Warner Brothers who fired the first shot in this, uh, in this battle just before Christmas saying that all of their 2021 releases, their, their whole entire slate, which I think is, is amounts to about 20 odd films, would, would all be um, on, on demand and could be accessed uh, at home and not in the cinema. Do you think that is now a genie that's out the bottle that won't be going back in again? What impact will it have on theatrical releases, the window? And has that changed the landscape forever moving forward? I think it's definitely made a considerable change. I don't think the genie is going back in the bottle. I think the genie might go a little bit back in the bottle. (laughs) I think the issue with that Warner Brothers announcement is it was incredibly bold and other studios have been doing other things, but kind of not on such a big scale. So, for example, if you take actually Universal were kind of the first to take a step, but kind of not in any way that really would have been perceptible to the consumer. So when the cinemas shut down um, last March, they had a number of films which um, had been on release in the cinemas for maybe a week and recognising that cinemas weren't going to reopen at least for a couple of months. They put those films straight onto the VOD platforms, kind of using the excuse I guess that you know the pandemic's here so they could they could get away with it and even that caused quite a stir in within the film industry itself um because it's kind of yeah it was an unwritten rule that you kind of don't break the traditional window which was 16 weeks from film release to on-demand platforms so there's been kind of a lot of like toe dipping and then I think that Warner Brothers move was like a really big strong statement from them But I don't think it was necessarily a bad thing. I think if I worked at Warner Brothers, I probably would look at the the outlook for 2021 and say, from Warner's point of view, it's probably the best way to ensure their revenue is to kind of take the move that they did. And obviously they have quite an aggressive rollout plan for HBO Max as well. They're kind of planning to be in most places by the end of 2021. So it, it works well for them on that front. I think, again, this is one of those things that was was rumbling um, <laughs> in the background before the pandemic happened. The whole 16-week window was incredibly traditional, and I think a lot of things about the film industry are very traditional. 
and there was always going to be a point where it had to kind of adapt to modern interests and the fact that modern audiences have so much choice now of where they can view films. And the, the issue with the 16 week window essentially is thus, that you release a film, normally the maximum it's going to play in cinemas is about eight weeks. So that then means there's a, means there's a whole eight weeks where that film just isn't available to watch. Um, and arguably that's part of what drives film uh, piracy. So that really needed to change, but there was a lot of resilience from the cinemas because obviously they felt they needed to protect what they could offer. And so they didn't want to see that window change, um, but it just didn't make business sense. And I think, yeah, their concern was of course that people will just stop going to the cinema. And there's not been much kind of research as yet as into whether people are being pulled away by streaming. But for the most part, the research that has been done, especially with younger audiences, is that streaming and video on demand are additional to the cinema. It's not an instead of, it's a as well as. I think you need to bear in mind that people actually don't go to the cinema as much as you think they might do. The average um, attendance in the UK is about three times a year. So for the most part, most people will continue to go to the cinema those three times a year and streaming actually offers them an additional offer. So, it, I mean, it's cheaper for one. So, you know, you may still be going three times a year to see, I don't know, Star Wars, the new Marvel film and James Bond, but you'll be more likely to watch perhaps a smaller film that you wouldn't risk spending so much money on, uh, on streaming. And then actually that enhances your view as someone who consumes cinema, because you might watch the smaller, more independent films at home realise there's something you like about them and then go and see those in the cinema. Mm. So I'm quite optimistic about it. I think that it just makes people more film literate and it makes sense to give people more options and to lean into it because, you know, there's there's revenue to be made essentially and revenue that was being missed out on. So uh, looking back over the last 12 months, what, what kind of trends have you seen seen develop in terms of the types of films that we've been watching, uh, the type of genres that have been popular. I mean, it's, uh, it probably won't come to surprise you when I tell you that I've got a 10-year-old and an 11-year-old, so we binge-watched pretty much every Star Wars film and Marvel film <laughs> twice or three times over uh, during the last 12 months. But I'm sure there's others who have, who have experienced and have, have seen new films um, that they probably wouldn't have had access to or would have gone to see in the cinema had everything have been normal. So what have you seen, seen develop over the last year? Yeah, absolutely. I think you're kind of spot on with this idea that people, people's tastes might be developing, changing. I mean, what was interesting is I always say that audiences aren't as stupid as you think. Um, and obviously it was really interesting to see just before we went into lockdown last year, um, the South Korean film Parasite winning uh, Best Picture at the Oscars went on to do about 13 million at the box office in the UK, which is the best result for a foreign language film ever, which kind of proves that sometimes it's not actually, it's not audiences taste that's the issue, it's the availability of these films and the awareness. You know, foreign language film normally doesn't have such a large amount of publicity or such a large kind of budget to get their marketing out there. And when it does, actually lots of people are interested in going to watch it. So I think that's really interesting because obviously going into this place now where there's more streaming and films available on more platforms, it is taking away that hierarchy a little bit whereby films might not be able to stand out as much because they, 
it, you have to spend a lot of money on marketing to cut through to advertise your film kind of in the theatrical space, the cinema space, to make sure people go and see it. You have to spend a lot of money on marketing. And I think the films that didn't necessarily have that are given the slightly more kind of equal playing field on streaming. So I definitely say that I think people are watching more independent content, more foreign language content and, and more diverse content. That said, obviously you mentioned franchise films. I think franchises are still incredibly important especially when it comes to kind of returning to the theatrical experience. People like to know what they're getting themselves into sometimes. So, but I think one of the kind of changes or trends that I've noticed is that it's not enough just to make a franchise film these days. Like it needs to be good. <laughs> <laughs> so if you look at the, the Star Wars films, for example, Force Awakens did incredibly well but kind of all of the spin-offs and then the sequels that followed that dropped off in box office and Rise of the Skywalker, the most recent one, was the, the lowest grossing of the three. I think that's because people kind of, they lost respect and they lost their kind of interest in the genre um, because they felt that the quality was declining. Um, so I think it's remembering it's like, it's not just enough to throw franchises at something you need to kind of invest in the quality of the film as well. I mean, you can say the same thing, looking at kind of how DC films perform versus how Marvel films perform. Ultimately, the Marvel films are doing better because they are, they're making better quality films. I mean, obviously there's an argument to be had about kind of the weight of Disney's marketing power. Like Disney will always have, you know, the strongest marketing power in the market. And kind of off the back of that, I think, there's been quite an attachment to very like just strong adult content. And when I say adult, I just mean, you know, films that are 15 or 18. So there was quite a lot of talk around Tenet being a, a failure at the box office. And by all means in domestic in the US, it's kind of harder to judge because some cinemas weren't open and it's a kind of, you know, a big map of different states. And it's, it's really hard to judge whether that film worked in, in the US. But in the UK, I would not call Tenet a failure at all, considering that um, cinemas had social distancing and people were still kind of uncomfortable about returning to the cinema. Tenet made nearly as much as Interstellar did at the box office in the UK, um, which is Nolan's previous film from 2015. And I think that just proves that, again, like I was saying, this idea of cinema becoming a night out, an event. And there's been, with my own, again, you know, looking at my own viewing habits and how they've developed over the last 12 months, I seem to have gravitated more towards comedy. I've gravitated more towards nostalgia, <laughs> um, documentaries as well. Albeit it's, that's not, not necessarily from a film perspective, more, more from, a, from a TV series. But there's, it's probably no, no accident that, you're, that we're starting to hear more reboots and remakes in the offing. And also... I think you've seen this um, after other other uh, times of trouble, you know, over the last uh, uh, fifty to, to eighty years of when when cinema has been a thing for most people, um, that they go to the cinema to escape, and they go and they go to be entertained, um, and they want to feel happy again. So, do you see there being again an increase in the in the number number of comedies, family films, perhaps, and and remaking those films from the seventies, eighties, and nineties? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So the thing about remakes is the reason they happen so much is because they represent um, a smaller financial risk for the studios. 
they already own the rights to um, the subject matter or the characters. So it's very easy for them to kind of go ahead and greenlight a film without having to, you know, have too much financial risk to start with. But there's been kind of varying responses, especially if you think about kind of some of the things we've had come to streaming, like most recently the sequel to Coming to America, yeah. <laughs> which I think they just called Coming Number Two to America, um, which I thought was perfectly fine, but I don't think I'd ever go and see it in the cinema. And I think a lot of people kind of felt the same way. They thought it was just fine. And I think, like I said, again, it's kind of, it's doing these things, but doing them with quality. I think one of the things that's developed in the past few years that I think we'll see more of post-pandemic is kind of these sort of like feel-good musical films. So things like the Mamma Mia films, um, the film Yesterday that came out a couple of years ago. I think people really enjoy music as part of kind of a shared experience in the cinema. And that's another example of kind of an IP that people are aware of. Um, so you can kind of use that to draw them in and then build a film around it. We've got West Side Story, I think, at the end of this year, which I think will probably, you know, it's Spielberg directing. I think that has every potential to be really, really huge. I'm not going to lie, I'm really looking forward to that. Yes, yeah, same. <laughs> I mean, I love musicals, so I'm a little bit biased. I think Family Films is a really interesting one, and it's great that you picked up on that, because one of the things I noticed when the cinemas started to reopen was I think people were concerned that people wouldn't want to take their children to the cinema because they were concerned about the coronavirus risk. And everything we've seen suggests that's not the case. Um, I think people quite liked the idea of taking their children somewhere where they'd be quiet for two hours after, you know, months and months of homeschooling. <laughs> no, no comment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's really interesting because actually family content that ne wasn't necessarily particularly high quality was massively overperforming. So where normally you'd have um, a studio family film to watch, there wasn't so much of that, but there was quite a lot of kind of smaller independent companies releasing animations and family content. And that's what was doing, you know, performing well above average with little to no marketing spend. Um, so I think absolutely there's a space for family content, especially kind of immediately coming out of, of lockdown. Um, and then comedy, I think, is a really interesting one. I think there's been an audience shift in perception over the past few years. And basically, it's been decided that comedy is no longer theatrical, which on a personal level, I disagree with, because I think there's nothing better than seeing comedy in the cinema and being able to laugh with a full audience. But I think because of the fact that obviously they're just lower budget films, there's less spectacle. They were gradually kind of underperforming and more and more comedy films are going straight to Netflix or Amazon Prime or, you know, other platforms. So I'll be interested to see whether that's something that we can kind of bring back into the cinema experience post-pandemic. I'm, I'm hoping for a bit of a revival, um, <laughs> but, but we'll see. I, mean, I think in terms of that kind of escapism, you're absolutely right. I think, yeah, the films that will struggle the most are kind of the serious dramas. I've had, had enough of that in their own lives, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's, you know, so I think also things like, you wouldn't necessarily expect it, but thriller and horrors will probably do quite well as well because they, they provide their own form of escapism. Yeah. And what about from a production perspective? Obviously, we've had some major, major films delayed in terms of their release dates. James Bond being, being the obvious one, which has been yeah. three or four times now. <laughs> um, so the pipeline will be busy. I, I take it over the next six to nine months. 
once uh, the cinemas start to start to reopen again. There was a period of time when nothing was being produced. So will we, will we have a gap at some point? Will, will it be a bit thin on the ground in terms of new releases? What, what do we expect there? I think this relies on, and I will say this because obviously, as I mentioned earlier, release date optimization is one of the things we do. <laughs> it relies on people being sensible and not just rushing to release their films that they've been sat on. I think there doesn't need to be a gap. There could be a gap if, like you say, I think there is a lot in the pipeline for the next six to nine months. Um, and and the concern really is, you know, if you're not sensible about re- when you release those films, you will lose money. You know, if you have too many uh, big films on one date, then people will only choose to go and see one of them. I think, to be fair, things, you know, these kind of um, short windows or same day releases we're seeing on demand now will help mitigate that a little bit. And I think that's partly why the studio is leaning towards it. It might not be um, the most ideal situation for the cinemas, but for the studios, obviously, if they go on demand and in cinemas on the same day, then they're maximising the revenue stream. There will be a rush to release things because people will want to get uh, revenue flowing back into companies. But I think people should still continue to try and be as kind of intelligent as they can when choosing when to release a film, because it can make a real difference to your box office return and ultimately, you know, more money at a later date. But again, I would say also, I think if there is a gap in kind of the bigger studio content that for that might allow another situation in which we can see more independent film thriving. A bit like we did when cinemas reopened last year um, and there was less blockbusters and more independent cinemas thriving. That's a, a possibility for this kind of supposed gap next year that we might have. Mm. You mentioned opportunities um, there and... I think not just in terms of the film industry or or the wider media entertainment industry, but across all industries and all businesses, there's been there have been opportunities to press the reset button in some cases and do things very differently, um, which leads to opportunities for potentially a lot more people. So just on that, can you talk about what the opportunities might be for the British film industry? But also uh, from a diversity and inclusion perspective as well, which I know is a very big, a big question to ask you. But it's not just been the pandemic over the last 12 months. We've also seen a lot of discussion around um, the need for more diversity and inclusion in all industries. So can you tell us a bit about, about that and how that's uh, what you expect to see over the next few years from a, from a film industry perspective? Absolutely. So... I would hope to see British film production scaling up a bit um, and kind of trying to make more, I would say, homegrown hits. Obviously, a lot of the production we do in Britain is kind of very heavily cultural stuff, which is great. Um, And we still get, you know, a lot of kitchen sink dramas and things like that, which have their own merits. But I think there's there's every need to be making kind of strong British hits. Things like I mentioned yesterday, for example, Because basically what we have seen um, since cinemas reopened is that we can't rely on Hollywood for the majority of our our content. And pretty much every territory in the world does rely on that kind of Hollywood pipeline of films to sustain their box office. Um, And all of a sudden, you know, when cinemas started to reopen, that just wasn't there. And different territories have recovered at a different rate because of that. China, obviously one of the situations in China is that they're kind of a bit further ahead in their kind of post-pandemic recovery in general than we are. But China has a very strong tradition of local content 
and they actually, you know, actively control how much Hollywood content comes into China. So they recovered quite quickly because they had a huge amount of Chinese content to release. Mm. Um, likewise, if you want to look to European territories, France has a really strong tradition of releasing local content at the cinema. Um, and they were kind of one of the fastest recovering European territories. I think, you know, it would make a lot of sense for Britain to kind of try and produce more British film that has big box office potential, maybe has an international reach and appeal as well. Um, So I'd hope to see that happening over kind of the next few years, because I think it's quite important to ensuring, yeah, the safety of our film industry going forwards. On the diversity front, I think it's a really interesting point. Um, And it's really interesting how people absolutely in the past year have pivoted to kind of have these conversations. I'm waiting to see what happens. There is a lot of data to prove that more diversity is needed. It's very easy just to look at the amount of films being made or produced by people of colour versus kind of the percentage of the population that people of colour and those two things don't match up. So already there is an obvious audience need, audience that are there, ready to um, consume this content and they're not being provided it. So that's one thing. Also, if you look at films made by people of colour, for the most part, they tend to be um, undervalued. They tend to have smaller marketing budgets. They tend to have smaller distributors behind them. And that just means they have less reach. Um, And now there's been more of kind of a conversation about, again, how the audiences are there and the audience are interested. The audiences want to see this content. It's about finding ways to make sure it gets to them. Interestingly, there was a report um, by McKinsey and Company. Um, This is about the US. I think it's really interesting um, about black representation in film and TV, which came out, I think, about a month ago now. Um, They were looking at the fact that Projects by black creatives in film and TV are either underfunded or they don't get made at all. And I mean, I don't know how they came to this number, but they basically estimated that it represented a $10 billion loss per annum in revenue. So they're basically saying we're losing out on $10 billion of revenue in film and TV because we're not working closely enough with black creatives. That's an astronomical figure. That really is. It's insane, isn't it? It's it's huge. And I've kind of, I've done similar um, analysis for the UK, like I say, just trying to work out the gap between films made by people of colour and the actual uh, percentage of people of colour in the population. And in the UK, again, I looked at films made by East and Southeast Asians. There were only eight released in the past 10 years in Britain, made by British East Asians, sorry. And again, British black directors, um, only 28 films released in the past, past 10 years. So we're not engaging with kind of diverse British filmmakers as well, which is really interesting. So I think there's actually a collision of these two points now as well. We need to be making more British content, but we need to be making more Mm. diverse British content as well because the audiences are there, the interest is there, but often, you know, those audiences are underserved. It's a simple matter of revenue. It is quite obvious now that those films need to be made. It's now on the industry players to start making those changes. And you are seeing them. You're seeing kind of 
I'm seeing more meaningful change than um, what I've seen in the past in terms of kind of gatekeepers and people in positions of power being replaced by people of colour. So that encourages me because you kind of, you need diversity to be this trickle down effect. It doesn't work if you just put um, diverse members of staff in junior positions and training positions. That's great too, because they will grow, but that takes time. Mm-hmm. So I think it's about people at the very top kind of taking a look at themselves and who's around them and working out what they can do to promote more diversity. But like you said, it's, um, you know, hopefully once this 12, 18 month period is over, uh, there's an opportunity for cinemas to to develop um for the film industry to develop and more opportunities to trickle down to more people if we can turn the negatives of the last 12 to 18 months into a positive then well i guess that's everyone's aim isn't it yeah absolutely absolutely agree uh before i let you go uh the oscars are a couple of weeks away now you know seeing as your 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 role in your business is all about predicting <laughs> what <laughs> what the future will have in store any predictions for the oscars Great question. My Oscar predictions aren't always great. Um, depends on the year. There was, I think, 2017, I got them all right across the board. And then a couple of years ago, I only got like half of them right. So <laughs> please don't rely on this. I think um, really interesting. And obviously the BAFTAs have already happened now. So that gives us a bit more of a kind of clue what's going on. I've always had Nomadland pegged for best picture. I think it will get there. And obviously that's, I think, the first um, Asian-American woman to ever be nominated for an Oscar. So I think there's there's a lot of opportunities to praise diversity in this year's Oscars. And I kind of hope to see that. Um, I think uh, Minari hopefully will do well, maybe on the screenplay and acting categories. Um, but there has been, there's been a bit of, as is always the case, a bit of Nomadland backlash in the past couple of weeks. Um, and I've had, I've had rumours about trial of the Chicago 7 kind of moving to the forefront which mm-hmm. is very much I've not actually seen it but it's it's a it's a awards bait film it's you know big ensemble cast historical event so yeah my money's on Chicago 7 or Nomadland for best picture um and then yeah expect to kind of see I think Minari and Promising Young Woman do the best in kind of the other categories so yeah we'll see though we'll uh, see well I've made I've made a note I made it. <laughs> we'll, just we'll, please, no one, you know, bet any money. <laughs> please. Um, thank you so much. That's been really, really interesting. And yeah, I look forward to going back to the cinema. Great. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. I really hope you enjoyed listening. And don't forget to like and subscribe for new episodes in our media and entertainment series.